You're listening to the front page edition of All Things Considered on Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. I'm Nikkel Smith. And I'm Christina Loeb. After three years of trying to fix a crack in a building, Progress and Duke Energy announced today that the Crystal River Nuclear Power Plant will be retiring. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Leah Harding spoke with Progress Energy and local officials about what the next steps are for the North Tampa plant. The largest power company in the United States announced today that Progress Energy Florida will retire the Crystal River nuclear plant. During a refueling process in 2009, a crack in one of the buildings was discovered and a plan to renovate part of the plant began. Mike Hughes, a spokesman for Duke and Progress Energy, said alternatives to retiring the plant once and for all were greatly considered. Uh, We had been reviewing alternatives to uh, repairing the plant, scenarios to retire the plant, and had done engineering analysis, financial analysis, analyses of replacement power costs, and uh, literally hundreds of additional inputs went into the comprehensive decision-making process, and at the end of that determined that uh, it is in the best interest of our customers and our shareholders, as well as the state of Florida, we believe, to make the decision to retire the plant at this time. This was the first of this kind of a repair to be performed on a nuclear power plant, and Hughes says the potential for leaks and disasters to occur proved to be too complicated and not worth the risk. Environmental hazards and high risk is what the director of Levy County Emergency Management, Mark Johnson, says he has been avoiding for years. He says risking the breach in hazardous material is not even an option. The threat of an accident at Chris River Nuclear Power Plant from an operating nuclear power plant is, is pretty low to Hughes says despite the recent decision to close the plant, the actual process to clean the plant site and rid it of hazardous material could take decades. However, environmental teams will be monitoring the land for at least another four years. Now we'll have, continue to have environmental monitoring, uh, significant environmental monitoring at the site. We'll have security at the site, but the the long-term decommissioning of the plant would not be completed for. Uh, generally another 40 to 60 years based on our proposed plan. Johnson says working closely with the federal and state government has been paramount in keeping the surrounding counties safe. Our job is to protect our, uh, is to coordinate with the utility and to coordinate with the state and federal agencies that regulate it and to protect our residents uh, in the unlikely event of an accident at Crystal River Nuclear Power Plant. That's what we do and that's what we will continue to do. Since the plant has been closed, alternative fuel sources are being considered. Hughes says building new natural gas-fueled power plants may even be an option because the price of gas is relatively cheap and the time of plant construction is relatively short. For now, Hughes says, customers are not being left out in the cold. We are providing energy through a variety of means, either from other Progress Energy power plants on our Florida system or through the, the wholesale market. Uh, purchasing from other utilities and other providers, or most likely a combination of those two. Marion County is arguably at the brink of extreme economic change, but word on growing Levy County's nuclear power plant program, Hughes says, is growing as an option as well. Uh, Well, we have a a separate plant uh, proposal uh, in Levy County, Florida, where we uh, announced this back in around 2007 and have continued to move forward with that. We don't have a final decision on whether to build the new nuclear plant, but we are keeping that option 
open and viable for the future. Mary Olson, the Southeast Regional Director for the Nuclear Information and Resource Service, says new nuclear plants should not be built. She says power plants shouldn't have even been built to begin with. Our members were opposing the plan to build two new nuclear power plants, and we still oppose it. Um, the closure of Crystal River illustrates that nuclear is a very bad investment for the customers and for the environment. Look at how many billions of dollars they've poured into the Crystal River plant, both before and after the cracks were found. And now it's just a pile of waste. It's a pile of waste that's threatening the water and still a safety and security issue. And the, the customers are getting nothing back. The workers are getting nothing back. The local community is getting nothing back. Hughes was persistent in saying that Progress Energy is not going to leave Marion County in a mess and will remove the toxic waste, including all of the fuel rods. Well, the fuel rods have been removed from the reactor. They are uh, stored in the, the spent fuel pool and in dry cask storage at the site, uh, licensed casks, uh, monitored storage. This is all done under the watchful eye of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. It's very, very safe. Olson says it doesn't matter how these toxic fuel rods are being stored. They are unhealthy and unsafe. The fuel rods are the most intensely radioactive, most concentrated uh, radioactivity on the planet. Each of them can deliver a lethal dose in less than a minute. This is, this is the high-level nuclear waste. This is what was the fuel and is now stored um, in a pool uh, and will be moved to dry containers uh, after it's taken out of the pool. The decommissioning of the plant will continue, including removing hazardous material from the site. Hugh says despite the steady workload ahead of the plant, funds do not seem to be in a short supply. The $835 million is the total amount that we have received from our insurance carrier uh, to go toward replacement power costs and the cost of repairs. That will flow directly through to customers. In fact, by our agreeing to the, uh, the mitigation proposal that we believe the customers will receive, start receiving those refunds at least two years earlier than they would if we pursued uh, longer-term arbitration. Closing the Crystal River nuclear power plant is clearly not an overnight process, but Hughes says Progress Energy won't be closing up overnight either. You know, we know that this is a, this is a huge uh, economic driver in Citrus County. We will continue to operate four fossil fuel plants in Citrus County. We're by no means leaving. We're going to continue to have a significant presence there. And again, we are still looking at uh, potential sites, including sites in Citrus County, for possible new plants. Whether new plants are built or older ones continue to be torn down, the process is all but over and the beginning of a 40 to 50 year transition for at least one plant has officially begun. For Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I'm Leah Harding. FedEx ground could be coming to Marion County soon. The Marion County Board of Commissioners and the Ocala City Council met today to discuss providing incentive money to build a FedEx ground hub at the Marion County Ocala Commerce Park. We're joined live in the studio by Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Maggie Schwartzman to discuss what this could mean for the community. Maggie? Yes, Nikel. 
The Marion County Board of Commissioners unanimously approved its part of the incentive plan to pay for a FedEx ground hub in Ocala at a meeting this morning. Now it's up to the Ocala City Council, who is currently in discussion about its portion of the incentive plan to build the almost 400,000 square foot facility. Chairman of the Marion County Board of Commissioners, Kathy Bryant, says the board felt this was the best decision for Marion County. She says if approved, the FedEx Ground Hub could put almost $123 million of capital investment into the community. Bryant cites the jobs this would create as the number one reason the incentive plan passed. Number one would be the jobs. Our Board of County Commissioners have been focused on economic development. And this would be a huge win for our community. We entered into a tri-party agreement with the city, of Ocala, the city of Ocala, the Marion County Board of County Commissioners, and the Ocala 49 LLC um, for a commerce park approximately a year and a half ago. And this would be our first um, major site to come into that and to um, uh, bring forth more economic development. Uh, in the first three years, they're talking about 165 jobs, and um, they are projecting it could be up to 1,000 jobs within four years. The Ocala City Council began its meeting at 4 p.m. today, and Brian expects it will also vote to approve the incentive plan. Manager of Office Public Communications for Ocala City Council, Janine Robbins, agrees, but says the council is under no obligation to follow Marion County's lead. Yes, we, we do anticipate, but, um, you know, they're certainly entitled to, um, you know, operate independently of that, of that board. Though they are not obligated to approve the plan, Robin says overall there is a consensus among council members that this would be the right move for the community. You know, based upon the um, direction that staff has been given to, to pursue this, this agreement, I, I believe that, that at a council level there is a, um, a, a sense that this will be good for our community, yes. The Marion County Commissioners agreed to pay over $1 million in incentive money, and if approved, the Ocala City Council will also, will also agree to pay over $2.3 million. Robin says the incentive money will be mostly funded through the state. Should, should the, these agreements get passed and should Federal Express elect to um, purchase the land at the Commerce Park and locate a hub, um, there are a variety of state-based incentives that, that they could be eligible to, to receive. Um, so much of it would be coming from the state. In addition to the jobs FedEx alone will bring into the community, both women are hopeful that FedEx will attract other businesses to the area. Well, one, one would certainly hope FedEx has a, a, a huge brand recognition and, um, you know, it would, be, um, it would certainly be wonderful to have them here and have that um, light shine upon this community and to let other industries and businesses know that, that we are open for business and we can facilitate these things happening. Marion County and Ocala residents are also looking ahead to the opportunities the FedEx Ground Hub could bring. Brian says she hasn't heard one negative thing said about the plan. I have not talked to one person who isn't extremely excited about this opportunity for Marion County. If the Ocala City Council approves the agreement, Robin says the further development of the construction of the hub would fall into FedEx's hands. If the agreement is approved, so the county's approved their agreement, if it gets approved at the council meeting this afternoon, then the next step is really up to Federal Express, and the ball is in their court, and they need to make a determination if they 
um, would like to, to locate here and would begin negotiating the purchase of the, the property, which is located at the Commerce Park. Bryant is hopeful the council will vote to approve the incentive plan. She says this is a big day for Marion County, and she is thrilled to have been involved. Just it was a, a it's a great win for our community, a historic day for Marion County, and I'm just you know proud to be a part of it. The city council is still in discussion, but if all the pieces fall into place, construction for the hub would begin in the summer of 2014. For Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I'm Maggie Schwartzman in Gainesville. This week, economic analyst Hank Fishkind is advocating immigration reform that he says will help Florida grow. Both President Obama and a group of bipartisan senators are backing immigration reform efforts that include a path to citizenship for undocumented immigrants living in the United States. WMFE's Tom Parkinson asked Dr. Fishkind to evaluate the impact of undocumented immigration on Florida's economy. Well, the latest data on the impact of undocumented Residents in the United States by the Congressional Budget Office indicated that they generated $48 billion in revenue while costing $23 billion in revenue, so two-to-one advantage. Uh, in the state of Florida, a January 2011 Chamber of Commerce study, which is the best, most comprehensive study, found uh, that undocumented immigrants uh, cost the state approximately a billion dollars in public services, primarily education, health care, and corrections, but they generate $4.5 billion worth of revenue, a billion three in local property taxes and $3.2 billion in state sales tax. So again, the undocumented uh, more than pay their own way based on the most comprehensive studies we have. Of, of course, the fields of employment that many, certainly not all, but many of these workers are employed in include lower wage jobs such as uh, construction and the hotel and restaurant industries. And with our service industry economy here in Central Florida, it would seem like that displacement of the lower wage jobs might hurt our labor force more than it would perhaps in other areas. Well, there is some displacement effect uh, by allowing undocumented workers to work in the economy. Uh, it appears that uh, there is very little of the displacement effect that actually occurs. Uh, in states like Arizona that started very harsh laws to restrict undocumented immigration, all of a sudden they found they had labor shortages in many of those low-skilled areas. The same thing happened in Alabama. So it reflects the fact that, that these people are serving an important economic niche that is not going to be 100% filled. Yes, in the short run there might be some displacement. If we move towards reform, uh, what will likely happen is uh, these people will become documented and they will actually be able to push for higher wages. There'll be less power on the part of employers over them. Wages should increase. That's what happened in 1987 when three million undocumented workers were given documentation and amnesty. So we'd expect something similar to happen this time. Wages would rise. Now that would hurt in the short run some of these businesses that depend upon undocumented, low-skilled, very low-paid wages. But it tends to create more output, more income, more wages, growing the whole Florida economy. And so that offsets to some effect the impact of the higher wages that will result from immigration reform. Now, here in Florida, as in many other parts of the country, but especially here in Florida, I think the, the argument is is far from academic. We, we have plenty of experience with this. We have a very large and, and growing immigrant uh, community. What can we learn from that? How, how has immigration affected our economy in Florida during our history, especially since like World War II, last 50 years or so? Well, well certainly uh, the Cuban immigration has transformed Miami. 
uh, and made it a world city and made it an international city. And it's one of the most vibrant economies in the state of Florida. Uh, locally here, the large influx of uh, Puerto Ricans and, and other immigrants legally uh, has had a very beneficial effect on the economy locally. So in the long run, immigration, especially when it is documented and controlled, is very beneficial to the economy of Florida and the United States. And the numbers in Florida are very large. Even the numbers for the undocumented, as best we can measure them, are significant. So they are making a significant contribution today to our economy. Well, what are those numbers then, as far as we can measure? You said an estimated 11 million undocumented immigrants in the U.S. What's the estimate for Florida? Over a million, which represents nearly 6% of our total population. But uh, since they are undocumented, Hank, it's, uh, you know, by definition, it seems that it's it would be difficult to know for certain. How do the researchers come up with that figure? Well, well, actually, the way in which it's estimated is based upon school enrollment, and undocumented children are enrolled in our schools. They are required to be enrolled uh, because of Supreme Court decisions. Uh, that's how census estimates. Uh, the University of Florida's Bureau of Economic and Business Research estimates based on surveys of households, which would include undocumented households. So on the population side, that million people, that's a pretty good estimate. We have more difficulty estimating undocumented workers in the labor force. The best estimate we have is about 750,000 out of a workforce of 9.2 million. That's the highest percentage in the United States at 8.2% of our workers are actually undocumented. That was WMFE's Tom Parkinson with Hank Fishkine. Florida lawmakers are continuing to weigh whether to implement the optional parts of the federal health care overhaul law. That includes the questions of if, when, and how to set up an online website where people can shop and compare insurance plans. Many have suggested converting some of the state's existing programs, but as Florida Public Radio's Lynn Hatter reports, the devil may be in the details of how that get do- gets done. Florida Health Choices CEO Rose Naff says she views a planned federal health insurance exchange in Florida as a direct competitor. It really makes no sense for us to compete against a subsidized insurance offering. Florida Health Choices was created by lawmakers a few years ago to serve small businesses. It's similar to the insurance exchanges outlined in the Federal Affordable Care Act, but without all the regulations on what products can and can't be offered. Some have suggested it could be remade into the state's insurance exchange. During a joint hearing of House and Senate committees looking into the Affordable Care Act Monday, Senator Joe Negron says he understands NAF's concerns. If, if, I'm, if I have a choice to go on Florida Health Choices or to go on the exchange, wouldn't I want to go on the exchange because the one thing you don't offer is a subsidy. The federal government will subsidize the cost of health insurance plans offered in exchanges that comply with its terms, but Florida Health Choices does not. NAF says the company might be able to survive if it looked at other areas not addressed by the law, but when asked whether the company, if called upon, could be ready to meet federal exchange rules next year, NAF said no. I've built half of one so far, and I do, I think it is, it is an unreasonable thing. It would be a a lot of people wouldn't sleep at night. All right, we've got... I just want you to know we don't sleep very much at night anyway. <laughs> That's Maitland Republican Senator David Simmons. He posed a similar question to the state's other exchange possibility, Florida Healthy Kids, which serves low-income children. Simmons wants to know about a possible merger between the two, and Florida Healthy Kids CEO Rich Robledo says he thinks that's a possibility. I do believe that if we made a decision soon, we could certainly be ready for an open enrollment period next October. 
as in October 2014. But that's only if state lawmakers approve the operation. And Governor Rick Scott, a vocal opponent of the health care law, would still have to sign off on it. The legislature will continue weighing its options throughout the upcoming legislative session. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Lynn Hatter in Tallahassee. As federal lawmakers weigh stricter gun laws, the Florida Sheriff's Association signed a proclamation supporting the Second Amendment. It says Florida sheriffs will not assist, support, or condone any law that infringes on Second Amendment rights. But Ashley Lopez of member station WGCU in Fort Myers reports constitutional experts say the sheriffs are overstepping their boundaries. The state's Sheriff's Association says it's not going to stand by any laws that might infringe on a person's gun rights. Lee County Sheriff Mike Scott said he and other sheriffs have the right to not enforce any laws they don't agree with. We, we don't currently enforce the law based on what someone else tells us to enforce. We, we, we deploy our resources, precious, by the way, resources in this economy, uh, the way we see best to preserve the peace and dignity of the communities that we're charged with. But constitutional law professor Bob Jarvis at Nova Southeastern University in South Florida disagrees. He says Florida sheriffs don't have that choice. They do not have the constitutional authority. Sheriffs don't have the responsibility to decide which laws are constitutional, which laws are not constitutional. Their job is to uphold all laws until a court says that law is an invalid law. Jarvis says the proclamation signed by the Sheriff's Association was most likely a political gesture. In Florida, sheriff is an elected position. The NRA endorses a Florida sheriff in every county, every election year. In Fort Myers, I'm Ashley Lopez. Advocates for the humane treatment of greyhounds are asking Florida lawmakers once again to remove a state law tying dog racing to gambling licenses. As Florida Public Radio's Jessica Palombo reports, they say the measure should help phase out a pastime that's already dwindling in popularity. Current state law requires dog tracks to maintain a steady racing schedule in order to keep their gaming licenses, and then they can offer games like poker. But on Monday, Carrie Teal, executive director of advocacy group Gray2K USA, asked the Senate Committee on Gaming to remove or decouple the dog racing requirement. It's my belief that as the dog racing industry further contracts, and if you allowed decoupling, you would see gambling on live greyhound racing decline further. Teal says he also wants dog tracks to be required to report greyhound injuries to the state. He says data from states that do require reporting show that dogs are frequently euthanized after being seriously injured. The most common type of injury, he says, is broken legs from falling during races. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Jessica Palumbo. Merchants in Palatka are being asked to be careful of the cash they're accepting from customers because it might not be real money. Palatka police say just in the last seven days they've received reports of four counterfeit bills being passed to local merchants. They say smaller bills are being used like 10s and 20s because those are the ones merchants don't tend to check for authenticity. Palatka Assistant Police Police Chief James Griffith says if you suspect you're being handed a counterfeit bill, you should let that person know. Uh, what we tell our merchants to calmly state that uh, the bill you've given me appears to be a counterfeit. I'm going to have to contact the police. Uh, please remain here and we'll try and get it sorted out. Uh, in most cases, the people that are passing the bill at the store usually stick around. We have had a couple where the people don't. And in those cases, uh, it kind of leads you to believe that they knew they were passing a counterfeit bill. 
Griffith adds it's mostly convenience stores that have reported the bills, but there was one incident where a counterfeit was used to pay for a newspaper ad at Palatka Daily News. But he says they don't believe the suspect in that case knew she was even passing a bill, and that's how it is in most cases. That's why they're asking all residents to be on the lookout for fake bills as well. Palatka police suspect the person responsible for the most recent string of counterfeits is a white female. Griffith wa Griffiths wants people to keep in mind that using counterfeit bills is a felony that can land you behind bars for up to five years. About 87 percent of the state's inmate population is expected to be released back into society, and Florida prison officials say it's important they continue working with those inmates before they become repeat offenders. As Florida Public Radio's Sasha Corner reports, the Florida Department of Corrections says it's already seeing proof of that hard work with a decline in the number of inmates coming back to prison over the years. Back in 2002, uh, I made an unfortunate decision to drive under the influence. You know. Eric Smallridge was a 24-year-old college student when he says he made the worst decision of his life. I made this decision to drive and it turned out the two 20-year-old girls lost their life because of that decision. And so I was sentenced to, to 22 years in prison on a first offense. And it was only by the grace of God that the two families of the victims came and asked the judge to run my sentences concurrent, and which put me in the position now to be a free man. Now 34-year-old says because the families forgave him, he spent about nine years in prison instead of the 22 and was released in late November of last year. Smallridge says he was able to get a second chance and now even has a job. But he says not everyone gets those opportunities. Goodwill gave me that opportunity, but first and foremost, DOC gave me that opportunity in work release. And you know, there's, there's limited facilities, but now I think they're trying to, to make that more available to more inmates so that when they, when they leave prison, it's not just the $50 they have to walk out with. Because you got to think about that. Put yourself in that situation. You've been, you've been kind of isolated from society for a long time. And then they give you $50 and they push you out the front door and then you have to make your way. And I've been blessed with, with support, but there are those guys that don't have that. Smallridge is just one example of a Florida Department of Corrections success story. A former inmate who's contributing to staying out of the criminal justice system. In 2003, the state's recidivism rate was at 33%. And by 2008, this recidivism rate had dropped to 27.6%, down from 33%. That's the department secretary, Mike Cruz. He's referring to what's known as the recidivism rate or the rate in which a person returns to prison within three years of release. Cruz says the decline in repeat offenders is also contributing to the drop in the number of inmates entering the state's prison system. For the year ending on June 30th of last year, the number of people admitted to prison dropped to about 32,000. That's about 10,000 fewer people than were admitted four years ago. Cruz says it's proof of the hard work and dedication that the department and other law enforcement agencies have done and continue to do to rehabilitate inmates. The Department of Corrections is committed to make sure that we provide the educational programs, the vocational programs, whether they're earning their GEDs or their high school diplomas, that we're providing substance abuse counseling for them. And we're providing skills and education so that when they get out, they have an opportunity to gain employment. They have an opportunity to earn a living, just like you and I do. And they have an opportunity to become productive citizens in this state. Cruz says just a 1% reduction in the recidivism rate means the state saves about $19 million over a five-year period. 
Governor Rick Scott has said he wants to use his savings to give bonuses to prison and probation officers. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Sasha Cordner. Former Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens spoke to students and faculty at the University of Florida Levin College of Law earlier today. He spent 34 and a half years in the Supreme Court. Stevens spoke about his position on many current issues, such as the death penalty and gun control. Stevens says history is one of the most important things when dealing with current issues. Well, I uh, think history is terribly important, and the more that we can learn about the history, the more more likely we are to get it right if we're trying to understand what they did. Stevens says making materials open to the public was one of his fundamental goals as Supreme Court justice and adds the public should definitely be aware of why a judge makes a certain decision. When I went on the uh, Court of Appeals back in 1970, I decided I'm not going to decide which cases are important enough to present. I, I think as a public official, I have a duty to explain my own views in the case. And so I decided back then that whenever I disagreed with the majority, I would say so. And sometimes there are good reasons for doing it. Sometimes maybe it wasn't worth it. But I thought as a part of the record of a case, the public ought to know how every justice actually votes. He adds that at age 92, he is enjoying retirement and that working over 30 years as a justice is a tough but rewarding career. Stevens left the students with some advice for success in the future. He says studying hard, working hard, and showing integrity will go a long way in the legal profession. It's, it's, it's very simple, and you've heard it over and over again, that one, study hard and take your work seriously. And the other word... Remember that the most important asset that you're going to have when you get out in presence, in practice, is to have everybody in the profession know that your word is good. Because that is a critical part of the legal profession, is the integrity of the lawyer. And that's something you must always keep in mind. Stevens says that his favorite thing about a long career as a Supreme Court justice is being invited to speak at universities like UF and jokes that the best part of his whole career is being able to fly on university airplanes to speak at schools across the nation. Gainesville residents can enjoy a free complimentary stack of buttermilk pancakes being offered at IHOP today, and it's all in the name of charity. The annual National Pancake Day is trying to encourage diners to take advantage of the free tower of pancakes put forward at over 1,500 IHOP restaurants in return for donations to the Children's Miracle Network hospitals. Here in Alachua County, all of the proceeds will go to benefit the local children's charities at Shands Hospital. Shands Communications Coordinator Brianna Swales says this event is important to the local community. It's really a wonderful way for the community to come together for one great cause that will help all the local children and their families um, throughout Gainesville and the entire state of Florida. Um, Children's Miracle Network uses all the proceeds to provide um, life-saving equipment, um, you know, funding for research, and really making um, children and their families comfortable, you know, their stay more comfortable while they're at Shands. Swale says IHOP is joining forces with the Children's Miracle Network. IHOP is a national partner of Children's Miracle Network, and um, we have seven area locations of IHOP throughout Gainesville and the Ocala area in North Central Florida. All the proceeds from today's um, National Pancake Day will go to Shands Hospital for Children at UF. Four-year-old patient Nate Farrell was present and flipping pancakes in efforts to help the cause. Swales explains the goals Shans hopes to reach through this national pancake offering. 
To raise as much money as possible so that they can provide um, as much care and support to families throughout the state of Florida. Swales adds that the event has a record for being successful. Last year with the seven locations, we raised $19,000, all of which went to Shands Hospital for Children at UF. And um, on a national level, we raised $3 million um, just last year alone. And the partnership has been going on since 2006, and we've raised a total of $10 million for Children's Miracle Network on a national level. Free pancakes will continue to be offered today until 11 p.m. Free pancakes aren't the only way people have helped raise money for the Children's Miracle Network. Florida's 89.1 WUFDFM's Stephanie DiNardo reports on how one convenience store chain has worked hard for almost two decades fundraising for the cause. The Children's Miracle Network and Pediatric Department at the UF College of Medicine has received a surprisingly large check from one business today. A Lake City-based convenience store chain called SNS Food Stores has raised over a million dollars in fundraising over the past 19 years. Keith Brown, vice president of marketing and human resources at SNS, says the stores will never stop raising money. As long as um, as long as our company is, you know, in the market and everything, and we're here. We plan to raise money for Children's Miracle Network. After experiencing two local cases where newborn infants had to be placed in the neonatal intensive care unit at Shands Hospital, Brown says it really created a personal determination to help raise money to save the children. It kind of just touched close to home, and at that time, uh, Dottie Ravendahl was the lady's name um, here that was helping with the Children's Miracle Network, and she got us involved, and uh, we've been doing it ever since. One of the main reasons we like it is because all of the money goes to help the kids. Some of the ways SNS Food Stores has raised money is by hosting events and encouraging employee fundraising. We do have events like um, one of our managers, she goes to the um, local races and stuff, and they let her help collect money out there. Um, we keep change pots by the register. And that raises a lot of money, believe it or not. And then, of course, each holiday they send us different uh, icons to sell, and we do that. And then a lot of the stores, they'll do up like Easter basket, big Easter basket at Easter or a big Valentine or something like that, and, and sell chances to win at that stuff. So. This year, the 50-plus SNS food stores raised $79,000 for the Children's Miracle Network, an 8% increase from last year. Heather Mears, Development Director of Children's Miracle Network at Shands Hospital, describes how the money raised by the food store will stay in local hospitals for the local community. The biggest thing that makes Children's Miracle Network stand out across the nation from other nonprofits is that the money stays local. So that the money we raise in our area closest to the hospital stays right here in the hospital to do the greatest need for our, our community. Mir says the million dollars raised by SNS food stores will help improve all areas of the network. What those funds through Children's Miracle Network do is help support three main different areas. Research through the Department of Pediatrics, equipment to make sure our patients are getting the best care they can, and diversionary items and services like our guests, um, our guest services and our child life program, something as simple as a coloring book to keep them distracted while maybe they're getting needles or having a procedure um, to big things like trying to find the cure for cancer through our research program. Mears adds that if you would like to make a donation, you can go to donations.childrensmiraclenetworkhospitals.org.
For Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I'm Stephanie DiNardo in Gainesville. Thanks for tuning in to the front page edition of All Things Considered. This has been a broadcast of Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. I'm Christina Loeb. And I'm Nikel Smith.